Greetings, you're listening to podcast number 119 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you on board. Today, you'll start off hearing about yet more right-wing policies that increase human misery, suffering, pain, and death, this time concerning the air you breathe. Next up, you'll listen to Sean Hannity use a nasty propaganda technique that I'll analyze for you. In the last segment, you'll get some useful tips on responding to right-wingers when they claim the Earth is flat or make similarly far-fetched claims in the economic arena. Let's get right into it. Sources you'll hear in this first segment are the Associated Press, MSNBC.com, The New York Times, and Reuters. If you're a long-time listener, you may recall my discussing a while back a disastrous right-wing policy concerning soot, one of the most dangerous toxins in the air. The Environmental Protection Administration's own scientific advisors had overwhelmingly recommended that the annual allowable amount of soot in the air be reduced by a certain amount. But the right-wing appointed EPA administrator rejected their conclusion. Estimates were that thousands of Americans would die each year as a result of the weakened regulations. Well, you have, like Yogi said, deja vu all over again. The EPA just issued new rules setting the allowable amount of ozone in the air. Ozone is commonly known as smog. It's nasty stuff. Quote, ozone is formed by the action of sunlight on two kinds of pollutants, volatile organic compounds, which come from gasoline and various industrial processes, and nitrous oxides, which are produced in cars and power plants. Close quote. What does smog do to you? Smog damages the lungs and leads to heart attacks and respiratory disease. It's also a greenhouse gas. The EPA has a 23-member outside scientific advisory council. This body recommended certain stricter ozone standards which would more adequately safeguard the health of the American public. It may come as no surprise to you to learn that the right-wing appointed EPA administrator, Stephen Johnson, rejected the council's recommendation and issued weaker regulations. There are actually two rules involved. One's the short-term limit, the other over longer periods of time. On the short-term limit, if you want to know the numbers, the EPA lowered the allowable parts per billion to 75. The advisory body had said lowering it to 60 to 70 was necessary to, quote, protect the nation's most vulnerable citizens, especially children, the elderly, and people suffering from asthma and other respiratory illnesses. The lower standard falls far short of what most health experts say is needed to significantly reduce heart and asthma attacks from breathing smog-clogged air. You know, one of my mantras is, that right-wing policies increase human misery, suffering, pain, and death. How much increased human misery, suffering, pain, and death will be caused by this right-wing policy decision? You're talking about thousands of extra premature deaths nationwide, not to mention huge numbers of additional non-fatal heart attacks and visits to the hospital and emergency rooms. Quote, Today's decision means millions of Americans will not get the protection that the law requires, said Bernadette Toomey, president of the American Lung Association, which had strongly urged the EPA to follow the advice of the science boards. Here's another comment from someone involved in protecting the air you breathe. 
It's disheartening that, once again, EPA has missed a critical opportunity to protect public health and welfare by ignoring the unanimous recommendations of its independent science advisors, said William Becker, executive director of the National Association of Clean Air Agencies, whose members will be developing programs to meet the federal air quality requirement. Close quote. How do right-wingers defend this public-be-damned decision? With their usual lies, obfuscations, and non-sequiturs. EPA Administrator Johnson said he did follow the science. In his own words, In the end, it is a judgment. I followed my obligation. I followed the law. I adhered to the science. You ignored the science, buddy. As far as obfuscations and non-sequiturs, Johnson said his new standards were the most stringent standards ever, that I made the most health-protective ozone decision in the nation's history. EPA Press Secretary Jonathan Schrader jumped aboard the obfuscatory express with this. Bottom line, America's air is cleaner today than it was a generation ago. All of that rhetoric has nothing to do with whether the new regulation is adequate. Better than before or strictest ever doesn't mean adequate. Imagine you're drowning 50 feet off the beach. They throw out a life preserver 10 feet. Way too short. Help, I'm still drowning. So they throw out a life preserver 15 feet or 25 feet. Still way too short. Help, I'm still drowning. What kind of an absolute moron are you going to think someone is who would yell back, What are you complaining about? We've thrown out the life preserver farther than we've ever thrown it out before. It's like when right-wingers double the amount of oxygen that mining companies are required to provide coal miners in case they become trapped underground. They doubled the amount, and true, it was the highest amount ever in U.S. history. But the right-wingers merely increased the supply from one hour to two hours, while experts said 48 hours were needed because miners are usually not rescued for a full day or two. It was the best oxygen supply standard so far, but still totally inadequate given current knowledge of what was required. Same here with the ozone regulations. Next stop, more on the right wing increasing the amount of deadly ozone you breathe. Left, the right, the right. Your one-minute voting report. Blast the Right is getting lots of new listeners at iTunes thanks to your posting those five-star reviews. We're also getting an increased number of right-wing one-star sabotage reviews, like this from Fair Reviewer, Typical Liberal Blather. Or this one, It is utterly sad that the majority of iTunes users buy into the sadly liberal crap that this moron is spewing. Wow. So if you haven't posted a five-star review for Blast the Right at the iTunes Music Store, please do so through the iTunes software, not the website. Podcast Alley voting is broken again, so if you weren't able to vote, maybe try again in a couple of days. I'll put a notice on the podcast homepage when Podcast Alley voting is working again. Thanks. You may be wondering, who wants dirty air? Apparently, some industry groups. 
Among those who lobbied intensely against the new rules were electric utility companies, the oil and chemical industries, and various manufacturing groups. They all made the usual right-wing claim, dredged up whenever anybody wants to do anything to protect the average citizen. They made the usual right-wing claim that the changes will cost too much and hurt the economy. Stunt economic growth. Yup, we've got to kill thousands of people to get that economic progress we need. And remember back in 1994 when the tobacco executives testified before Congress that they didn't believe tobacco was addictive? Today you have the Edison Electric Institute, which represents investor-owned utilities, claiming, according to the New York Times summary, that the precise relationship between ozone and human health was still the subject of scientific dispute. You guys want to suck up ozone? Go right ahead, but please don't force the rest of us to. I had mentioned there are two standards involved. The second one deals with long-term exposure to ozone. The EPA Scientific Advisory Council had recommended that it be a stricter number than the short-term level. That was apparently what the EPA was going to do. But then, according to the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Bush White House, through its Office of Management and Budget, intervened, pressuring the EPA to drop the stringent long-term standard. Only at the last minute, when the EPA was told that President Bush himself preferred the less stringent approach, did the EPA relent. It was really at the last minute because the EPA had to delay its announcement of the new regulations for five hours. When announced, the long-term limit had been weakened to match the short-term level. Well, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong at all with that eminent scientist George W. Bush, who aside from all his other many learned accomplishments in life, has advanced degrees in medicine and epidemiology qualifying him to make such a decision. Here's the appropriately outraged clean air director at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Never before has a president personally intervened at the 11th hour, exercising political power at the expense of the law and science to force EPA to accept weaker air quality standards than the agency chief's expert scientific judgment had led him to adopt. It is unprecedented and an unlawful act of political interference. In other words, apparently the Bush White House steamrolled over even its own right-wing appointee when the right-wing appointee wasn't kowtowing to industry enough. And, as you might expect, more right-wing lies in defense. Tony Fredo is White House Deputy Press Secretary. No doubt, crossing his fingers behind his back, Fredo said with a straight face that this was not a weakening of the regulations or standards, that it was a technical matter. What to do, what to do. While the right wing still controls the executive branch and thus the regulatory apparatus, Congress is forced to get into the act. My congressman, Henry Waxman, is chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. Representative Waxman wrote EPA head Johnson a letter charging that the decision overruling the ozone standard recommended by scientists was similar to the decision I mentioned at the top of this segment when a few years ago EPA officials overruled the scientific recommendations about soot levels. Waxman wants an explanation charging that such EPA decisions 
suggests that science is not the primary basis for your decisions. Nicely understated. Now you know, Waxman has been called the mustache of justice for his pit bull investigations of wrongdoing. I hope he gets to the bottom of things here. Probably not much he can do in the short time left, thank God, that Bush will be in office. To close, let me really, really stress, you need to remember this is not an academic discussion. These right-wing decisions to ignore the science will kill thousands and sicken countless others. As always, right-wing policies increase human misery, suffering, pain, and death. Would that, in the near future, we'll elect a president who won't appoint right-wingers to ignore the science, but will appoint straight-shooting, scientifically-oriented administrators. These government regulators will make decisions based not on what industry demands for higher profits, but on what will make the air you and I depend on for life more safe to breathe. In other words, progressive policies to enhance human health and prosperity. These people are all libs. Every day he tells dozens of them. I don't know any more than what I'm telling you, other than I lie. Oh, so that's it. Every day I'm going to expose one. I just flat out freaking lie. You bloated idiot! The Rush Limbaugh Live of the Day with your host, Joseph Lyles. Five days a week at cgradio.net. You can't handle the truth! Recently, there's been a big brouhaha about statements made by Barack Obama's pastor. Before that, the right-wing noise machine was trying to get everyone all riled up about statements by Barack Obama's wife. That latter effort didn't get much traction. I want to go back and discuss one aspect of it now, however, to illustrate a right-wing propaganda technique. The technique is utilized here by none other than that master propagandist, Sean Serial Interrupter Hannity. I call this variety of propaganda removing the quotes. It goes something like this. A quotes B as saying X. Not approvingly, just saying that X is what B said. The propagandist then goes ahead and tells everyone A said X. The propagandist is stating only a half-truth, the fact that A did physically mouth these words. But the propagandist hides the fact that A wasn't stating those words as his or her own belief, but was merely quoting what someone else, B, had said. Got it? Good. The Hannity propaganda involves his removing the quote, so to speak, regarding what Michelle Obama wrote in her senior thesis at Princeton in 1985. Now, of course, why what Michelle Obama wrote over two decades ago when she was in her early 20s is even being discussed is another issue. Even assuming it is somehow relevant to her husband's run for the presidency in 2008, Hannity still, as always, misleads his audience. Let me first read you the relevant excerpt from what Michelle Obama wrote. Her thesis was entitled, Princeton Educated Blacks and the Black Community. Another possible hypothesis created from this study's findings explaining why respondents became attached to blacks at Princeton is that the mood of black students at Princeton during the time that most of the respondents were attending Princeton was more separationist. As discussed earlier, most respondents were attending Princeton during the 70s, at a time when the black power movement was still influencing the attitudes of many blacks. 
it is possible that black individuals either chose to or felt pressure to come together with other blacks on campus because of the belief that blacks must join in solidarity to combat a white oppressor. As the few blacks in a white environment, it is understandable that respondents might have felt the need to look out for one another. One can contrast the mood of the campus years ago and the level of attachment to blacks to that of the present mood of the campus, which is more pro-integrationist. It appears that the present mood of the campus is one that encourages integration and assimilation of blacks, whereas the mood of the campus and even society in general several years ago encouraged the separation of blacks. Close quote. Michelle Obama is clearly talking about the attitude of blacks on the Princeton campus in the 70s, long before she arrived there. The passage Hannity dishonestly latches onto is, it is possible that black individuals either chose to or felt pressure to come together with other blacks on campus because of the belief that blacks must join in solidarity to combat a white oppressor. Michelle Obama is saying that blacks on the Princeton campus in the 1970s may have had the belief that blacks must join in solidarity to combat a white oppressor. Hannity repeatedly tries to get you to believe that the alumni views on race are Michelle Obama's own views. Here now are a couple of excerpts from Hannity the end of last month over a three-day period. These clips are from MediaMatters.org. If you've been following the campaign closely, you may also notice that Hannity also misstates and takes out of context what Michelle Obama said about being or not being proud of our country. But we'll put that aside for now. Trying to get into every half-truth, distortion, or outright lie in any one sentence of Sean Hannity could take an entire podcast and then some. Gird yourself. Here's Hannity. And then we discovered that Michelle Obama, who made this comment last week when she said she felt proud of her country for the first time in her life, she, in her thesis at Princeton, wrote the following, uh, talking about, she said, because of the belief that blacks must join in solidarity to combat a white oppressor, she talked about why African Americans joined together at Princeton. Is race going to now be an issue for them? When you couple that with... Um, some of the comments that his wife, for example, made this weekend, you know, quote, to combat white oppression while she's at Princeton. Sh should people take a look at this? Is that a concern for people? Well, the issue of race has come up here. Uh, not only those comments by Michelle Obama, as she said for the first time in my life, uh, that I am I'm, I'm proud of my country, which I think stunned a lot of people. There was also the news that came out this week, Mr. Speaker, that she had written this thesis while she was at uh, Princeton, where she talked about, uh, quote, blacks must join in solidarity to combat a white uh, oppressor. His wife in her thesis at Princeton said, quote, blacks uh, must join in solidarity, to, the belief that blacks must join in solidarity to combat a white oppressor. On, top of the, on, heels, on the heels of the statement for the first time in my life, I'm proud to be an American. When you add that to the comments of his wife about the first time in my adult life, I'm proud to be an American, the use of the word white uh, oppressor in her thesis, do you think people are going to respond negatively to all of this? So Hannity makes it sound to his audience like Michelle Obama was stating as her own belief that blacks must join in solidarity to combat a white oppressor. When in reality, she was citing the 1970s attitudes of African Americans on the Princeton campus who had preceded her there by over a decade. I don't know how the controversy over Barack Obama's pastor will play out, but at least if a right winger tries to throw Michelle Obama's senior thesis into the mix, you can set them straight.
as well as be on the lookout for other dropping-the-quote propaganda efforts by the right. And one more thing which you might want to point out to your friendly local right-winger, who probably gets all bent out of shape just hearing the phrase white oppressor. From the founding of our nation in 1776 until the Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954, for the first 178 years of American history, there was either legalized slavery or legalized American-style apartheid in this country. For an additional 10 years after that, there were no federal civil rights, voting rights acts, or other broad-scale protections. There certainly was a white oppressor. For African Americans in the 1970s, a mere handful of years beyond the some 188 years of legal oppression or lack of federal protection, to be speaking of a white oppressor, what on earth was wrong or inappropriate about that? My girlfriend doesn't call people names. She doesn't think that liberals are insane. Involving by her looks My girlfriend does not write hateful books But she can cook So I guess my girlfriend Is no end Coulter My girl has a soldier She got no chips on her shoulder And I thank God that she's no end Coulter my sources for this last segment are books, google.com, and the Encarta Encyclopedia online. A listener recently told me he didn't like to waste time debating with right-wingers whether the Earth is flat. I could really relate to that, can you? It does sometimes feel as if you're doing just that when debating certain socioeconomic points with right-wingers. One of the problems is sometimes right-wingers don't realize they're claiming the Earth is flat that they're asserting as the truth something so contrary to common human experience, so out of the realm of normative human conduct, that there's not much to say but, you've got to be kidding me. One way to force such a realization on a right-winger is to show them how their position has been directly contradicted by those in their own camp, or at least by someone who couldn't possibly be called a communist or the like. I definitely find this technique useful. I hope you will as well. Remember a couple of podcasts ago I read you some passages from the American Revolutionary War hero Thomas Paine? Paine wrote in favor of an estate tax, in favor of a progressive tax, meaning the wealthier pay at a higher rate, and advocated a social security type system for the elderly. Since Paine died before Karl Marx was even born, it would be silly, even for a right winger, to call Paine a communist. Now I want to give you another such example to use to point out to any right-winger who you're having the pleasure of conversing with that some of their socioeconomic ideas are beyond the pale, flat-earth stuff. This quote is from someone perhaps dearest to right-wing hearts, someone who is known as the father of conservative economics. I'm talking Adam Smith. This is what Adam Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations. The necessaries of life occasion the great expense of the poor. They find it difficult to get food, and the greater part of their little revenue is spent in getting it. The luxuries and vanities of life occasion the principal expense of the rich, and a magnificent house embellishes and sets off to the best advantage all the other luxuries and vanities which they possess. 
A tax upon house rents, therefore, would in general fall heaviest upon the rich, and in this sort of inequality there would not, perhaps, be anything very unreasonable. It is not very unreasonable that the rich should contribute to the public expense, not only in proportion to their revenue, but something more than in that proportion. There are two elements here. Arthur from Omaha, Nebraska, more on Arthur in my end comments, Arthur wrote into me recently about how his right-wing friend incessantly complains that the rich pay too much in taxes. Well, that's a ridiculous complaint, as Adam Smith explains. The poor and the working class spend all their money on living expenses. You can't squeeze blood from a stone. In contrast, as Smith puts it, the luxuries and vanities of life occasion the principal expense of the rich, so that taxes would in general fall heaviest upon the rich, and in this sort of inequality there would not, perhaps, be anything very unreasonable. Nothing unreasonable at all! Hear that, oh right-winger, directly from the mouth, or at least the quill pen, of the father of conservative economics? And then the second element is Smith's endorsement of the progressive nature of taxes, that the rate of taxation goes up along with the income level. As Smith said, it is not very unreasonable that the rich should contribute to the public expense, not only in proportion to their revenue, but something more than in that proportion. Adam Smith died 28 years before Karl Marx was even born, so I think it highly unlikely even you right-wingers would have to agree with this, I imagine. It's highly unlikely that Marx had any influence on the thought of Adam Smith. A progressive tax falling heaviest on the wealthy is not an element of Marxist analysis or advocacy. It's simply regulated capitalism. Good old-fashioned, FDR-style American progressivism. If you right-wingers want to oppose progressive taxation, fine. But don't bring in irrelevancies like Marx and socialism. Smith came to the idea that the rich should bear the heaviest tax burden and that a progressive tax rate would not be unreasonable all on his lonesome. The same way most people come to these two conclusions, mixing in equal parts common sense, life experience, and basic human decency and morality all qualities you might suggest that your right-wing friends and relatives start applying to their own belief system. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at Podcast Alley. And also remember to post a five-star review for Blast the Right on iTunes. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Why don't you come over to the podcast homepage, subscribe for free, and then you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. I have to say, as I expected might be the case, the last show about Ralph Nader generated quite a bit of negative feedback from some listeners. I was called, among other things, a centrist, a Democratic Party fanatic, a thinly-veiled corporate apologist, and an operative of the corporate political duopoly. An operative of the corporate political duopoly. Has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Almost sounds like something real important. It was actually kind of refreshing being criticized, not from the right, but from those who think of themselves as more authentically left than I am. I do appreciate all these commenters and others who emailed for taking the time to write in. They brought up further Nader-related issues I need to address and clarifications I need to make. 
I also got some positive comments on the segment. If you want to join the debate, go over to the Blast the Right blog on the podcast homepage. You get to the podcast homepage by typing in Blast the Right in Google, and I'm the first result. Listener Arthur, who I mentioned earlier, is a professional entertainer. Check him out at AmazingArthur.com. He offers a discount to Blast the Right listeners. Finally, a correction. The former Secretary of Labor I quoted a few podcasts ago on social Darwinism, his name is pronounced Robert Reich, not Reich. A listener working for him corrected me. Thanks. And now a word from the Progressive Podcast Network. The Progressive Podcast Network. Now we are the media. Listen to your media. Take your country back. ProgressivePodcastNetwork.org Music credits. The break music was The Schnee Speaks by KG House, combined with the alternate Blast the Right theme by Nye's Music, and Not the One Blues by Burnsheet Thornside. The bumper music was My Girlfriend is No Ann Coulter by Lucky Man Clark. We'll close with a little bit of One Big Union by Matthew Grimm and the Red Smear. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on the data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Your email continues to be excellent. Please keep it coming in. I love to hear from you. To write in, my address is rational at roadrunner.com. If you want, you can also leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Just dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a comment on Skype. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. When the nickel-